Well, good evening. Uh, tonight we'll be reading from the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 1. So feel free to open up to there if you would like to follow along. <clears throat> so to position us in the correct time in history, let me mention that the prophet Zechariah was a contemporary with the prophet Haggai. And both were bringing the oracles of the Lord during the period of the first returnees from the exile to Babylon. This period was initially occupied with the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall and the temple so that sacrifices might resume. Now, I don't know when you last read the book of Zechariah. I read it ahead of preparing for this evening's devotional and, well, it can be pretty weird at times. It has a number of visions that left me scratching my head, but aside from the bizarre bits that were also very, ex they were also very exciting and hopeful sections with imagery and references I did recognize. For example, there are glimmers of a priest-king, a combination of offices rarely combined in the Old Testament. And there are phrases that triggered recollections from other narratives from the New Testament, like Zechariah's well-known prophecy of the coming king riding on a donkey. And there are references to, to Jesus' betrayal price and the striking of the shepherd that scatters the sheep. But there are also promises of salvation and of restoration and an end of the problems that plague God's people. There's a certain comfort that comes from reading the Old Testament texts and recognizing their fulfillment and actualization in the New Testament. Perhaps not convincing to all, but for me and for you, I hope, it grows one's confidence in the veracity of the Scriptures. It increases both one's appreciation of, of the Lord as well as a healthy fear of Him. This is, tr this is the true and living God we are dealing with, and all that was and all that will be are under his control. So with that in mind, let us meditate on Zechariah 13.1. The text reads, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now the good news for you and for me is that this text is not super weird. It's not like the ones about a flying scroll or about a pair of women with stork wings. Now, if that interests you, I direct you to Zechariah chapter 5, and you can read that tomorrow in your quiet time with your coffee. Now, mercifully for us, we have a verse full of hopeful expectation and encouragement. As we contemplate it together, we will consider three aspects of the text that will structure our time together. First, we consider the promise itself. Second, we will observe the participants of the promise. And thirdly, we will reflect on the purpose of the promise. So promise, participants, purpose. So, firstly, the promise. This is the what of the text. It reads, On that day there shall be a fountain opened. So what is this about? Well, as we learned this morning from John 7, verse 37, Jesus invites any who are thirsty to come and drink, and he will cause those who do to have eternal life, and that they themselves will have living water flow out of their hearts like a river. John tells us this is a reference also to a spirit that was yet to be given until he was glorified. Now, the imagery of the spirit as water being poured out to bring new life is quite commonplace in the Bible. We've been talking about it quite a bit this evening. And not too long ago, we were treated to a sermon on the temple vision in Ezekiel, where there was water stemming from the threshold of the temple, which, when measured, got mysteriously deeper 
and deeper until it formed a river that flows into the Dead Sea. The sea was purified and then it is filled with teeming life both within the water and along its banks. And, we think, and when we think of accounts of the pouring out of the Spirit in the New Testament, we can't help but be reminded of Pentecost and the giving of the Spirit there which initiated the Apostle Peter's sermon that convicted and led to the conversion of 3,000 souls. So this promise in Zechariah comes alongside and echoes the same promise of the new covenant that the prophets that came before Zechariah, like Ezekiel, um, prophesied, which point us to the coming of Christ and the work accomplished in his gospel, which was in a special way heralded by that day in Pente- in, during Pentecost. But let us reflect on a particular detail of the text. Let us note the words on that day. We should not miss the importance of this because of where we sit in history relative to this text. This was a promise given in the past. Notice the unambiguous designation of the day. It's that one. It has a specificity to it, like one pointing to a date on a calendar. It would not be missed. It would certainly come to pass. We should be reminded and awed in God's sovereignty and providence as he works all things within the multitude plans of man and history to bring about his purpose and his will. The Lord in his mercy and kindness appoints a day for the blessing of the Holy Spirit for the purposes of giving new life. To the original hearers of the day, this would surely have encouraged them greatly as they returned to their desolate Jerusalem and broken temple, as they strove to rebuild it amidst the opposition and dangers and disappointing setbacks. This promise must indeed have spurred them on. I'm not sure how they might have initially understood it. Perhaps they understood it as a full return to temple sacrifices with God's glory returning in a visible way to dwell among them within the Holy of Holies again. I'm not sure. We, however, have the benefit of time in history that enables us to see how that day is now. Initially dawning on the first century, we see how it points to the coming of our Lord Jesus, who died once for all sin, and been raised to new life, he ascended into heaven from where proceeded the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and still pours forth as he builds his church today. But here in our text lies a warning too. Just as there was a day appointed for the giving of eternal life, which has come to pass, so too there is a day appointed for the judgment of sinful life, which will also come to pass. So, listener, if you are not yet specifically relying on the death of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, I would urge you to pay attention to what day it is today. Do not defer your availability to turn away from your self-willed exertions to make yourself righteous. No, turn and appeal to Christ and his sufficient merit to give you an accounting of righteousness before God the Father. There is no other day to do it. As the scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your heart. And what about you, brothers and sisters? Perhaps you've been feeling the weary toll of your pilgrimage. Have you been wondering why the Lord seems to have tarried so long? Do you begin to doubt he will return? Take courage from our words this evening. Just as sure as that day dawned in Jerusalem, so there is another day which will dawn on us when our Lord returns on the clouds of heaven. So keep the lamps trimmed and the oil ready for the coming of the bridegroom. Hold fast until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, 
when you will walk no longer only by faith, but now also by sight. So moving on, let us look at the participants of the promise. This is the who of the text. It says, There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Let us note that the fountain is open for someone in particular, or some people in particular. When Jesus addresses the crowd in John 7, that's more, this morning, the likely hearers were, from, uh, were people from Judah as well as those who had traveled to Jerusalem for the festival. Likewise, during Pentecost in Acts 2, when the apostle Peter, after the crowds accused them of disorderly conduct from the noise arising from the giving of the Spirit, he begins his sermon by addressing the crowd with the words, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Holy Spirit is restricted to just the clan of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. We know from our Lord's own testimony that his gospel should be witnessed to all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But by way of application, I do want to point out that there is a particular group that the fountain is efficacious for. Anybody may come to Jesus and ask for living water, Jew and Gentiles alike, but it's not going to wash over everybody passively. The text rejects universalism, the idea that everybody is saved and goes to heaven. This text shows us this is not the case. Universalism is a very attractive doctrine in our day and age. I guess it's probably been attractive for every generation since, since the Lord's time, but it's not a doctrine taught in Scripture. The important question for you, Hero, is, are you a recipient of the Holy Spirit? Have you applied yourself to Jesus Christ and asked for the water that leads to eternal life? Have you been united to Christ in his life and death so that he is now your head and you belong to his body, the church? This, the church, is who has been designated as the recipient of the fountain. God's people are no longer just a related set of clans from the Middle East, but rather as the Spirit goes out to all nations, He unites all who turn away from their sin and believe in Christ to become one new person, His bride. So with this in mind, dear saints, be encouraged to continue to offer the water of life. Even as you faithfully execute your duties as a Christian, avoid growing dull in your passion. Grow in the knowledge of Christ and your love for Him, supplementing your faith with good works among each other and those in your influence. Where the Lord has gathered us, His Spirit dwells. And where his spirit dwells, new life is found growing. Just as a trickle of water at the temple threshold supernaturally became a swollen river that brings life to the Dead Sea, so let us be confident that our witness can be used to cause an increase in all who come here to receive the water of life from Christ. So thirdly and lastly, let's look at the purpose of the promise. This is the why of the text. It says, The fountain is opened, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. We have unavoidably hit on this purpose several times already this evening, and so this point will be quite brief. But just because I am brief here, let us not be guilty of passing over the importance of the text or of ignoring it because of our familiarity with the words. We might all too often be tempted to think that the cleansing from sin is only necessary for those who first believe and when they first believe. And indeed, so far as I have mentioned it tonight, it has been in the context of addressing any unbelievers who might be listening to this. But hear me, brothers and sisters, we would do well to remember 
that the cleansing that brought us into union with Christ also enables us to abide in him. We are not so perfectly holy that we are without sin, and our sin still stains and mars our communion with the Heavenly Father. It still draws his displeasure and elicits his rebuke, and the hand of the Almighty is not a light one to be under. So let us all the more press on and pursue holiness. Let it be our daily aim to bring it about more and more. Let us not be satisfied with a little church time and a couple noble thoughts. Instead, let us relish the battle and the demise of our sin and the vanquishing of Satan's strongholds in our lives. But when we stumble, remember the fountain. Remember that your sins have been, have been and can still be cleansed as white as snow. Remember that your uncleanness and impurity from living in a fallen world and brushing upon, up and against its unclean principles, they can be washed from you so that you can again confidently enter God's community and take counsel with the Lord and with his redeemed. Remember that God has opened the fountain for this purpose, that he has opened it for you, just as he promised he would. Let's pray. Our merciful Father, we are grateful for the hope of eternal life. We thank you for the work of the Spirit that gives new life. We thank you for the way that he takes us by the hand and leads us in the graces of repentance and faith. We thank you for the ministry of this church. We thank you that we can come to you and lift up prayers to you. As we have done this evening, Lord, we entrust them to you and your good will to work them out in your good time. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this church. And this, this, this evening, we pray. Amen.